episode 16 Alexander the Great podcast. How's everyone going? I hope you're all doing well. Write me a review on iTunes and, and if it's read out at the end of the podcast episode, you shall receive a gift all the way from Greece. You will find a link in the description to my donation page. It greatly helps. It really helps to receive a bit of money every now and again. Thank you very much to those who have donated. And you can please send me an email, alexandros.cast at gmail.com or through my Facebook page, Alexander the Great Podcast. Or you can subscribe to my YouTube page, Alex, what, where is it? Alexander the Great Podcast Michalis. If you write in the end, it should come up. Thanks, guys. Hope you like the episode. See you later. Last time, we saw Alexander being made regent. He was 16 years old. For the Macedonians, and probably all people, regent to the king is serious business. He's in charge of the nation's security while the king is away. He has the royal seal, meaning that he can validate the king's decisions on public documents, and doing all the daily sacrifices to the great ancestor Heracles or Hercules, progenitor of the Timidid dynasty. It's like he's saying, guys, if I die, this kid is in charge of this whole situation. Alexander will have some help, Antipater and Parmenion will stick around and be his advisors. Philip had said, I don't get the Athenians, they elect ten generals by draw, but I only have one, Parmenion. So he's left behind men he trusts, perhaps sacrificing something in the process. I'm sure Alexander thought he didn't need them, as his future actions show. A Paeonian tribe, the Mevi, heard the king had left his 16-year-old in charge, so they decide it's time to revolt. Medi being the birthplace of Spartacus, you might have heard of him, he's not going to be around for a few centuries, so back to our story, Alexander wastes no time and begins to march with the Macedonian army, the goal being to put down the rebellion, for which he is completely successful, what else would you expect? He truly though went above and beyond his call of duty, he sent citizens to repopulate the city of Medi, mostly soldiers, he wants to make sure this doesn't happen again. He also renamed the city to Alexandrupoli, meaning Alexander's city. He's copying his dad, right? We've seen Philip name a few towns after himself. This isn't the modern Alexandrupolis that we have today, in today's Greece, uh, which I thought for a very long time, which was named in the 20th century by Alexander I, King of the Greeks. After Alexander's magic, Antipater and Parmenion take charge of three more tribes, the Vesus, the Lanthalites, and the Melinophagus. We don't know if Philip gave the order, or if they were reacting to Alexander's campaign against the Medi to stop any extra trouble that could arise. 
We also don't know how Philip reacted to Alexander's actions. I think everyone would love to see Philip's reaction, right, to his lad naming um, naming a city after himself. He probably wasn't put off by it because we see him give Alexander even more important roles within the Macedonian army. Philip, as of now, has isolate, isolated Silivria, Byzantium and Perinthos. In 340, he began with 30,000 men and his small fleet of ships to set siege to Perinthos. The Perinthians did not send help when Philip asked for it against Gers of Leptis. There were also probably allies of Athens. Uh, for this, we're not completely sure, but if they were, he has a chance now to go against his enemy's friends. Unfortunately for Philip, the siege didn't go well. The city was built on a hill and the houses were constructed like an amphitheater. So they start off by throwing arrows and spears without much luck. This pissed off Philip, so he just picked up the biggest, baddest stones he could see, put them on catapults and break down the walls. They managed to break some parts of the walls, but because of how the city was configured, the Perinthians moved up a level and having and they had another line of defense. When the news got out about the siege, Byzantium sent supplies to their lovely neighbors, as did the great king of Persia. He ordered mercenaries, supplies, money, food, and anything they would need to be sent to them. The authors said the Persians watched with great concern the spread of Philip's power. This is what Alexander is referring to in a few years from now, after the Battle of Issus. Him and Darius had exchanged letters. Alexander said the Persians have always meddled in Macedonian affairs and brought up the siege of Perinthus. The siege continued for a few months, nothing was changing. At some point, the Perinthians asked for military help from Byzantium. They were happy to oblige. They sent soldiers and their own catapults to go against Philip. Again, the siege continued until Philip said, OK, half of the soldiers stay here, the other half go are going to attack Byzantium. Many here are quick to note Philip's failure. If he was unable to take uh, the city with his entire army, how is he going to cope with half his army? And how could he possibly take Byzantium, a city that had larger walls than Perinthus, with half the soldiers, right? It's probably not going to work out. He was probably hoping to take them by surprise, but that didn't work out because they found out he was coming. On the way to Byzantium, he made a stop in Silimbria and decides to siege them. So he leaves a few soldiers there too. He's going for three simultaneous uh, simultaneous, yes, simultaneous sieges. He reached Byzantium. He was probably hoping that because they sent some of their army to Perinthos, their defense would be compromised, but this wasn't the case. Byzantium was, go- was getting help from Hio, Kos, Rhodes, and Persia. This is when Philip first used the torsion talk catapult. We talked about uh, we talked about that in the past. Still, though, nothing was accomplished. They did manage to cross the city's walls one night, but some barking dogs gave their location away, and they were pushed out. 
Byzantium's allies then forced Philip's fleet to retreat in the Black Sea, giving them an opportunity to restock with this with supplies. And then the Athenians decide it's time for them to join in. They help Byzantium with supplies. They elected three generals, Charitas, who was already in the north, along with Kifisophondas and Phokionas. And let me just remind you that nearly a decade ago, Chios, Rhodes, Kos and Byzantium started the social war that we talked about because they didn't like having Athens tell them what to do. And now <laughs> they're all working together against Philip. You know, how the tables have turned, right? The Athenians wanted to show everyone that they had taken the war extra seriously, so they decided to break a column that the Peace of Philocrates was written on. This new war was named the War for Byzantium. Demosthenes says that the war was officially declared when Philip took a fleet of ships that was sending wheat to Athens. He's taking our food, he wants us to starve, so we declare war against him. If that was the case, then it wouldn't be called the War for Byzantium. It may, to, it may have been called the War to Keep Our Tummies Full or, or something like that, you know. As he always would uh, as he always would like to, he makes Athens look like the victim, right? Classic Demosthenes. That's what you expect of him, really, don't you? Philip did hold a fleet of ships that was sending wheat to Athens, but this hasn't happened yet. When it happened, there were 230 commercial ships. They were docked in the entrance of the Sea of Marmara. Charitas was supposed to look after them. He was summoned to meet up with some satraps who were helping Perinthos and Byzantium. So what are we going to do with this crazy Macedonian is probably how it started off. When Philip heard Charitas was away, he ordered for an attack. When Dimitrios, who was in charge of the Macedonian fleet, took charge of the opposition's fleet, Philip and his soldiers decided to take a break for a few days. Charitas is gone. Might as well chill the fuck out, man. Of the 230, 180 of the ships were Athenian. The 50 that weren't were left to leave. They were from Rhodes, Chios and Byzantium. Those he kept were dismantled and with their wood, and their wood, sorry, was used to make siege engines. <laughs> what the ships contained, mostly wheat, was sold, and from this, Philip made 700 talents from profit. That's how much Athens made in a year. Charitas returned at some point and was able to push Demetrius out, but it's a little too late, but he was able to trap him in the Sea of Marmara. Philip wants to get his mate Demetrius out, so he thought of something very clever. He wrote a letter to Antipater and told him, The Thracians are revolting. Uh, send army immediately. I'm going to meet them there. Uh, I'm done with the siege. Fuck it, I'm leaving. The letter never got to Antipater. The Athenians had camped near the Vosporus. They stole the letter, read it, and said, If Philip is going to Thrace, we should go there too. So they leave thinking they are helping the Thracian rebellion. Demetrius then had infinite time to get out of the Sea of Marmara at the same time as Philip went to Byzantium. He travels west through Hersonysos, offering help to his fleet. 
the three sages with Perinthos, uh, Perinthos, sorry, Silimbria and Byzantium are starting to take their toll. They're starting to tire him out, so he decides to end them. This shows us that he probably didn't take them that seriously, right? Um, you know, he could have just kept going and see where it went, you know, completely draining his financial status and everything, but he probably just wanted to prove that it can be done. He could have asked for more soldiers, but was like, you know, yeah, let's just move on now. Uh, what he has accomplished is that he created conflict with Athens. It's not the kind of blow that would take them out, you know, they will do just fine. Physically talking, they'll live, but mentally it has to fuck with your head, knowing that your rivals have taken your ships, dismantled them and built siege engines that you never know may be used against you. Philip will eventually sign a peace treaty with Perinthos and, with Perinthos and Byzantium, meaning that he leaves the sieges in a better position than he was before. He may not have flattened the city as he may have liked, but he has spread Macedonian influence as far as the Hellespont. He has damaged the Athenian fleet, leaving him in a better position just in case they were going to fight each other. While all this is happening, the Amphictyonic Council were about to meet. Head of the council was Cotiphos from Pharsala, a city in Thessaly known for being anti-Athenian. The Athenians sent Eschines, Midia, Thrasiclis and Diognitos to represent them. When they arrive, you can imagine their surprise when they found out Amphisa, an ally of Thebes, was about to charge Athens for being sacrilegious. Amphisa wanted a sacred war to be declared against Athens, so their power was diminished in central Greece. So this is what they came up with. In 373, a temple of Apollo in Delphi burnt down. Because of the sacred war, reconstruction of the temple had came to a halt. But by 340, where we are now in our storyline, the temple is up and running. The Athenians think it's okay to hang some golden shields they had taken from the Thebans and the Persians in the Battle of Plataea, the last battle the Persians had against some Greek city-states, not Thebes, they had an alliance with them. They, uh, Thebes and the Persians had an alliance at, this, at that moment. Eventually, Alexander is going to destroy Thebes, and there are, but there are still some things that need to be said before we get there. I still get messages and comments uh, on my Greek podcast about how Alexander was right to do so. There were always traitors and all that kind of thing. You know, well, this stems from from that from from there from them allying with the Persians. So forming an alliance with an enemy cannot be forgotten even today, two and a half thousand years later. The Athenians, by the way, added a label to the shields. This is from Athens, taken by the Medes, meaning Persians, and the Thebans, who went to war against the Greeks. <laughs> if I was tech-savvy, I would have added Chris Tucker's damn from Friday. But anyway, one more thing. The Athenians were so irresponsible, they even hanged the shields before they made the appropriate sacrifices, meaning the temple was not purified. Perhaps they forgot, who really knows. They were probably giddy at how angry the Thebans were about to get. 
So Amphisam throws all this at them and asks the council to not allow them to visit the Oracle of Delphi. And they should be charged with a fine of 50 talents. The Athenian diplomats, Diognitos and Mivias, said that they didn't feel well and were unable to talk. Thrasicles also didn't give a speech, but we don't know uh, what his excuse was. They probably thought they're better off not talking, because if they tried and failed, the city of Athens would surely blame them for it and hold it against them. Eschines didn't give a fuck. He came out as if nothing happened. He completely ignored the charges thrown by Amphisa and blames them for being sacrilegious, due to them cultivating land in the sacred plains of Kireo, a land that is very near the Oracle of Delphi. And not only that, but they also built some structures. The Amphiseans didn't even try to get themselves out of this crappy situation. Then, seeing they weren't defending themselves, no one else, <laughs> no one else tried doing it for them. The next day, the council visit the Kireo fields. They find everything Amphisa was charged with to be true. In the next Amphictyonic council, they decide that if Amphisa does not sort out the mess, they are. They're not, they're not going to sell out the mess they made. They're going to have a sacred war declared against them. On the shields hanged by the Athenians, no one talked about. <laughs> it goes to show you how serious they took the accusations and how well Eschines performed. We've got more important things to focus on now. You know, who cares about the shields and everything? Demosthenes was probably feeling slightly envious of Eschines. And I say this because... He managed, even though he managed to dodge a massive fine from the Amphictyons, in his On the Crown speech that was given in 330, he blames Eschines for taking a bribe from Philip. So yes, all this, apparently, was set up by Philip. He had three siege engines going on, and, uh, and he still had enough time to orchestrate this shit show to have Eschines look good and have his influence in central Greece. Sounds like a lot of trouble to go over to go over nothing really. The Mostenes wants Athens to form an alliance with Thebes against Philip. If in the coming council the the Amphictyons uh, vote against Amphisa, they are automatically putting themselves against Thebes, who, as we have said, have an alliance with Amphisa. The Mostenes convinces the Ecclesia of Athens to not even show up. Don't vote, don't do anything. He doesn't want to piss off his probable allies, Thebes. In 339, around May or June, the Amphictyons declare a holy war on Amphisa, with Thebes and Athens being absent. Them not showing up shows us that they probably would have voted for Amphisa, but everyone else was voting against them, so, you know, what's the point in showing up? President of the council was a gentleman called Cotifos, as we have said. He announced that Amphisa will have to pay a fine, and those who kicked out the members of the council, they went to check out their, illeg their illeg illegitimate buildings, and they were said, you know, leave us, leave, leave, leave don't look at anything. <laughs> Those bastards were to be ostracized. So if they failed to pay the fine, an army commanded by none other than the man himself, Philip of Macedonia, will be marching towards them. Now, 
ostracism. What is ostracism or exostrachismos as we say in Greek? It was created by the Athenians on in the 6th, 6th century. Its purpose was to protect democracy, which basically means anytime the Athenians felt uneasy about someone having too much political power, they would decide to send him into exile for 10 years without him losing any of his wealth. This was an annual thing, so every year they would get together and decide who they wanted to get rid of. So they found a few guys and thought, yep, let's ostracize them. They would break a clay pot, write the person's name on they wanted to exile, and throw that piece of clay in a fenced-off area. If those pieces were more than 6,000, they would separate them in a pile depending on whose name was written on. And whoever had the most votes was kicked out. One of the ancient sources that talked about ostracism was Plutarch. In his book about the life of Aristides, he has a nice little story. In 482, during the ostracism of Aristides, it was said that a, an illiterate and kind of on the wild side man passed his shell over to Aristides, as if he was nobody, and asked him to write Aristides' name on it. And he asks, what evil has Aristides ever done to you? He says, nothing, I don't even know the man. I'm just sick of hearing how just he is. <laughs> Aristides then, being the fair and just man he was, wrote his name on the shell and gave it back. <laughs> uh, anyway, yes, we left Philip as he was stopping the siege of Byzantium. The plan was return to Pella, but let's visit the Scythians. They were being kind of shitty. Let's go and have a chat. Atheas was king, was the Scythian king. He was 90 years old. He went to battle against a tribe called the Istrini. They had quite a few losses and uh, he then asked Philip for military help. Philip, being the good lad he is, yes, of course, absolutely, why not? Even though he had three siege engines, uh, even though, sorry, he had three sieges going on simultaneously, he sent some infantry and cavalry soldiers. Atheas had promised him his daughter and his kingdom for this act. By the time the Macedonian soldiers reached them, the king of the Strion had died, and those remaining capitulated with the Scythian king. And says, well, Thanks for showing up, you know, I managed to sort it out all by myself. <laughs> Off you go now. And uh, the soldier said, well, you know, it costs us to be here, you know, to travel all this way. Do you mind helping out, you know, with the transportation fees? And Atheas said, yes, you know, yeah, I would love to probably, but, but it hasn't been the best year for us. We are barely making enough to survive. There's basically no chance we can repay you. Now, this isn't just some random king. He has stretched the Scythian borders to the max. And it's also probably just a matter of time. One of the newly found cities of Philip in Thrace is going to be attacked by him. Having all this in mind, in the spring of 339, Philip takes his soldiers from Byzantium north towards Atheas. Philip reached the Scythians and he tells Atheas, let me come in, I want to put up a statue of my ancestor Hercules, Hercules Heracles. I took an oath while I was sieging Byzantium, also it would be a symbol of 
the of a Macedon of Macedonian rule. But affairs doesn't budge. According to Theophrastos, his reply was if Philip sends the statue, I will not only it will not only be put up, but I would guard it by my word of honor. I will not allow an army enter my lands. If Philip put up the statue without the Scythians' consent, I will take it away, and with it I shall turn its bronze to arrow heads. This old man is very ballsy, right? He's 90 years old, I remind you. <laughs> Philip is like, okay, so I guess I've got to fuck this guy up. They have one single battle, Athias dies, and Philip spreads his borders all the way to the southern end of the Danube. We don't know if he went on through with a statue. How funny would it be if he just ended the battle, turned to his men, all right, what, are you fucking crazy? Let's just go home. There's no need to, there's no need to put a statue up now. And so begins the long road home. The spoils taken from the Scythians were 20,000 purebred host horses and 20,000 men and uh, women and children to be sold as slaves. Theodorus points out that it's true what they say about the Scythians, the Scythians, Scythians, Scythians. Uh, they're a poor bunch of people, no gold, no silver. If they had any, you could be sure Philip would have taken it. This review is from our friend Coltergeist. 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 I think, is that from a film? I haven't seen that, sorry. Um, <laughs> from Canada, all the way from Canada. The title is Fast Becoming My Favourite Podcast. Five stars. Thank you very much. We're off to a, at a great start. Alexander the Great Podcast is extremely informative and in-depth without being boring. I've tried listening to audiobooks as well as other podcasts on Alexander the Great, and I either dislike the host or I am bored out of my mind. I like how Michalis tells things how they were without sugarcoating it. He also uses frequent humor you wouldn't normally hear while trying to learn about Alexander the Great. Wow, well, thank you very much for that review. Please send me your address at uh, alexandros.cast at gmail.com or through my Facebook page, Alexander the Great Podcast. It should come up. It would be great to hear from you and uh, you'll get a gift all the way from Greece. Thank you very much, guys. That was the podcast. See you later. <laughs>